welcome. Uh, so glad you guys are here uh, to worship on this weekend. And um, my name is Brian Beeman. If I haven't met you, I'm so uh, thankful that you're uh, here, a part of our church this weekend. Um, I'm the lead pastor here and excited to uh, lead us in a time in God's Word this morning. Um, the week before Easter, I cannot wait. Um, I just love this this opportunity to reflect and uh, and celebrate is become just one of our um, favorite seasons of the year in our church. And uh, do not miss our Good Friday and Easter services. Um, and I'm so excited about the special uh, sort of Saturday night vigil service. We've never done this before, and we just felt um, God leading us to this around this idea of injustice and uh, what people do when they gather around injustice is uh, take a time, oftentimes just to mourn together and to and to thank Him. And so it's gonna it's gonna come out of the reflection that we have on Friday night, and I believe it's gonna be uh, good for our souls and our hearts uh, to gather in those ways. And so. Um, but today, and, and then two weeks after Easter, um, we're back in the Sermon on the Mount. I promise you, this, there will be an end to this, okay? Um, it, it will come to a conclusion. Um, Jesus, like any other message, uh, messenger, will eventually get to the amen part, and then um, we'll transition to some other things. But um, this series has left an indelible mark on, um, I know, on my own heart and on our church in so many ways. Um, and I've just been asking again and again, God, would you manifest in this day um, a more pure, beautiful, um, compelling picture of kingdom culture through our lives, amen? And, um, and so this morning, we're going to lean in and, and hear from God. Get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in there. Oh God, you've had us on a journey in this that has been a both bold um, and tender, it has been both a confronting and reassuring. It has demonstrated both your a clear leadership, but also um, your father love. And I thank you for the way that that has done that to my soul as I've studied this and wanted and longed and prayed and in some seasons begged you to produce this fruit of kingdom culture in my life and in the lives of the people of this church whom I love um, so dearly and deeply. And so I just pray that you would uh, reassure us this morning, guide us, protect us even in this uh, message as we'll see. And would you just um, prepare us for this piece of kingdom culture to get uh, locked into our minds and hearts. So we trust you with that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, one of the most powerful currents in our world today is the uh, is the constant challenge um, to any exclusive statement, except for the exclusive statement that there can be no exclusive statements. Like, apart from that, um, the, the world tends to be a turn towards against this. Absolute statements of truth um, are assaulted with zeal in our culture. Um, everyone fighting for their freedom to be whoever they want, to do whatever they want with whoever they want, live their life according to their truth, the end goal in all of this is to challenge it, to challenge all truth, and to try to create a truly free, unrestrained culture where everyone is free to find themselves and find true joy. This is the cultural experiment of the day. You cannot hide from it. Um, you, you, you cannot isolate yourselves from it. You cannot 
um, uh, find some way to protect yourself from the reality of this. It is the cultural experiment of the day. And into this culture, the gods are many. Maybe not named like they were in ancient cultures, but they are many. Money and self and comfort and independence and a pantheon of other gods. A completely opposite of kingdom culture is this culture that is a consistently sort of building itself and sometimes it feels pretty intimidating, like it feels like it's building itself literally around us. Kingdom culture in, in light of that culture has been uh, discouraged, attacked, and rejected by the majority culture because that culture is to accept anything and everything. And so here's what we know. The, the cultural experiment is failing miserably. It is. It doesn't take long, it, it doesn't take much of a researcher, a sort of researching sort of skill to find out that, that both the physical implications, the mental implications, the spiritual implications, and the relational implications are tearing at the fabric of everything, and the fruit is not positive. It's leaving people longing uh, for, for more sort of hopeless and, 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 and empty and they attempt to avoid the condemnation of sin but without a savior, sin always wins and slowly but certainly leads to death and it is tragic. And I look out at that and I just go, man, God, I just, I just want your kingdom culture to lead us and to teach us and to let that message flow from our lives in, hear me, in clear ways, but also in humble ways, in kind ways, in gentle ways. Disciples of the kingdom culture affirm an exclusive message. You, you can't understand the totality of scripture and not understand that, that Jesus is the only way, that the only way to heaven and the only way to live. Jesus is the only true God and he's the rightful king of the world and every aspect of life because of that, if you believe that, if you believe the, what, what the pages of this uh, Bible teaches you, then every aspect of your life should be under his authority. Jesus over every dimension of your life in every season of your life, that, that his ways are higher than your ways and that his gospel message, as you understand it, as we've even unpacked it, it, it calls for actually a death to self and to find true life in him. No other God sits higher. It is absolutely, unequivocally exclusive. And in the final section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus builds this case for kingdom culture that we've already walked through, and then he communicates one lesson in four different ways. The big idea for all three of these final weeks in the Sermon on the Mount is this. Every disciple must commit everything to follow Christ. And in this, what you'll see as the Sermon on the Mount finishes is you'll see Jesus use four different illustrations to paint this one point. It's two ways, two trees, two claims, and two houses. And that's how he concludes. And we're going to cover the ways and the trees in this message and the claims and the houses in the two weeks following Easter. So read with me um, Matthew chapter 7 starting in verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Two illustrations that Jesus gives that, that, that paint this picture of, of, of what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who has committed everything to follow him. So let's look at the first one, two ways. Embrace the constraints of Christ's way. This is verses 13 and 14. Often in the Bible, what you'll see is Jesus kind of, um, and in the Old Testament you see this laid out, they sort of uh, promote sort of two ways. It's sort of like two options. If you've ever been in a conversation, you're like, okay, it's either this way or this way. And, and, and God does this a lot. In the Old Testament, he calls his people to choose between life and death, the, the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Throughout Scripture, God puts two ways in front of his people, and he calls his people to follow his way. It's the same thing in this passage. Look, there's two ways that he lays out. Option number one, you could think door number one, is the wide gate. The way is easy, but it leads to destruction. Many enter by it, which means uh, this is the majority way. This is the a most popular option, and it feels easy, but it ends badly. Then there's option number two. Option number two is the narrow gate. The way is hard, but it leads to life, and those who find it are few. <clears throat> this is the minority way. It's not popular or common. It feels hard, but it ends with life. Jesus calls his disciples to enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate, well, the, the, the picture that Jesus is giving is that the narrow gate, it constrains, it, it, it limits, it, it restricts actions. It's hard. Like, did, did you hear that? I, I, I want to make sure that you heard it. Because it's, it's, it's moments like this in Jesus' teaching when he's setting right expectations for the disciples of Jesus Christ. Both in our understanding and critical in our communication of the gospel. It's hard. It's hard. Like the word literally means to afflict with suffering. So I, I, I just want us to process a bit about this. Because suffering is expected because the starting point of discipleship, of following Christ, is denying and dying to self. It's a narrow way. It's, it's hard because it's not popular. You're not going to get a bunch of people that are going to be like, oh man, the, the, the way you're choosing to live and following Jesus, that is, that's just awesome. Some might, maybe because of some like Christian sentiment left in our country and in our culture. But most people are going to be like, that's so weird with the decisions and the commitments that you make. It's hard because you'll move against your flesh. You actually move against the way that you naturally feel. That's not easy. We've said this uh, before in the series. Like, let us not be people who, when we've walked in life for decades, look at the person who's just starting. You're like, it's awesome. And forget the the, the hard that had to be paid to get to awesome. It's hard because you feel the constraints, particularly in the beginning. 
This is, the, this is the life of faith, though, is to focus on Christ and submit and to follow him. And in the beginning, until you establish a testimony of God's faithfulness to give life, it's particularly hard. And too often, what's happened in the church is that we've, 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 we've failed to share this aspect of the gospel, but, but here at the very end of the, of, of the Sermon on the Mount, but the beginning of Christ's ministry in his first sort of sermon, he finds such a priority that literally at the end of this sermon, it's like one, two, three, four different illustrations painting this picture of the nature of what it means to follow Christ and the challenge of it and the difficulty of what might come against you. D.A. Carson, in his um, commentary on uh, Matthew 7, gave this really, really helpful illustration that I want to use this morning. He says, too often what's happened when we share the gospel is we've, we've communicated it like, hey, it's, it's so open like, and, and welcoming, like the love of God, and, and, and it's awesome how much Jesus can transform your life, and, and there's eternity, and they're all right things to share. But we talk about joy and peace and, and eternity, and, and the person enters into the church, and they know some things that are right and true about God, but suddenly as they continue to walk, they start to feel the edges and the constraints of discipleship. Suddenly what starts to happen is, is they start to hear rebuke and correction, and in their own sin and fallenness, they start to experience a call to change and to die to self, and they get shocked. Because they were like, yeah, I thought it was so awesome and loving and everything was just peace and happiness. And then they enter closer in and they start to feel the constraints of the gospel and what happens to people at this point. Jesus talks about it later when he talks about the parable of the four soils. He's like, the seed got planted, but when you feel the constraints of it, a lot of people are like, peace out. And you see this again and again and again. Because the gospel's been incompletely taught. And so people enter in and sometimes they and, and so sometimes they bounce out and they're just like, nope, I don't want any part of that. Sometimes what they do is they exist still in the ecosystem of the kingdom of God. They come to church, they might read their Bible, they might pray, they might do all the right things, they might even have a bunch of Christian friends. But they never move further than here. And, and while they project that they're in, the reality of their life is that they're continuing to choose the easy way. And so now you get duplicity. You get duplicitous lives. I know God. I pray, I read the Bible, but I'm not a believer. And what Carson suggests is that when you read and listen to Jesus at the end, what you have to do is flip your presentation of the gospel. See, the reality is at the very front, Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me. You've got to deny yourself, and he's like, the way the entrance in is the narrow gate. And we have to understand this and communicate this again and again and again. We have to flip it around. The gate is narrow. It's going to be hard. But we embrace the constraints, because once we embrace the constraints on the front end, then, as we begin walking with Christ, we begin to experience the freedom and the goodness that comes from following Christ, and suddenly we're like, this is awesome. Because on the front end, we've paid the price, 
And this is what Jesus says again and again. Like, like he says, if you want to be my disciple, prioritize me over all other relationships. This is how he, this is, these are his intro messages, guys. This is like, hey, my, my, my first um, preaching tour, I'm going to communicate to you, you need to hate your father and mother and brother and sister and pretty much everybody that could be important in your life, and you need to prioritize me above all those relationships, your faithfulness to me, your loyalty to me. If you want to be my disciple, bear your cross and follow me. Renounce everything you have. Submit under my teaching. Yes, also the love of Christ and forgiveness. Yes, also to eternity but yes to the narrow way on the front end of our understanding of discipleship. And this is, again, it's seen throughout the, not, only the, not only the specifics of what Jesus teaches, but the, but, the, but the redemptive story. It's cross before resurrection. It's putting off death before you can put on life. It's, it's repentance before revival. And I know that some of you grew up in context where the, the reality, or were in churches where the reality of what you were taught was the, the, really the wide way before the narrow way. And sometimes people enter in through this way, and then they're like, whoa, 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 this isn't right. And they start to read the Bible and understand, and then they go through here, and they're really authentically disciples and walking with Christ, but their testimony would be, yeah, I was in the church, But then there came a point when I really started living under the authority of Christ. And I gotta be honest, church, I believe that moment is when someone really becomes a disciple. I believe that is a salvation moment. And I believe in the church today, particularly in America, that there are hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ all the time who would have said, I knew Jesus. But you you can't separate the, the character of Jesus as Savior and Lord. Just like you can't, you can't love somebody and split the personality. Well, I love that part about them, but not that part. It's not possible. And so um, that's how I entered the kingdom of God. That, that's from the very beginning of my faith. I felt the constraint. When I gave my life to Christ, I made him king over everything. I didn't even know what it would mean specifically. I didn't even understand all of the realities of the constraints but, but, but I knew that if, that, if, that if Jesus was who he said he was in his word, then, then I knew that I was going to live my life coming under the constraints of whatever he said. I entered through the narrow gate. And then out of that, I started to experience as I understood the truths more deeply and fully and still walking in that way, still walking in this place where I feel like the more and more that I walk with Jesus, the more and more I experience the freedom of the gospel and of the kingdom of God and the goodness of the testimony of life that comes from the hardness of the constraints. This is an essential illustration for kingdom culture because one way the narrow way on the front end sort of opens up the beauty of joy over time as you experience the commitment to the constraints on the front end. The other one is sort of like, whoa, and it's shocking to people. Faith in Christ is evidenced by a firm commitment to follow Christ wherever he leads. He's Savior and Lord. To diminish the exclusivity of Christ's authority will make it easier to believe in Jesus, but it is not biblical discipleship. And it won't lead to life. Honestly, I I think this is one of the reasons why 
um, marriage is in such disarray in our world because not enough people are really like counting the cost of what Jesus intended that to be. This like place that, that, that has this beauty of life and challenge in it and out of it, God wants to form you in it. And if you come in just thinking it's gonna be like honeymoon season, you're like, whoa, little harder than I intended. But if you're like, okay, this is gonna be a thing, you can lean into it and early even in marriage, God can begin to, uh, to teach you some things that are so helpful to your soul. If Christ really died for your sins and resurrected from the grave to conquer sin and death, if the words of this book are true, like I believe it to be, then, then God is the, is the highest, most loving authority in the history of the world and faith in him demands your complete and total allegiance to his will and ways. Constraining. And so let me just ask you this morning, uh, the most important question when faced with this teaching from God's word is, are you a true disciple? If you've entered in through the wide gate, there is still an opportunity by the grace of God to be like, you know what? I don't know that I have ever walked with Jesus as Lord, and if you haven't, then um, I would call you to come and to turn and to experience something way greater than sort of wandering around in some of the good themes of the gospel, but not really knowing the God who wants to lead your life specifically and totally and wonderfully and graciously and lovingly to bring joy to your life. A true disciple of Christ expects narrow and hard because they've heard the message of the kingdom and they know that's the culture. They know the counsel of God's word, God's spirit, and God's people is going to constrain their ways. And they know it's gonna be hard, but it's worth it because it brings life and so they embrace it. They embrace the constraints to experience life and they'll, and they'll actually start to want more of it and start to choose the narrow gate more quickly. There's areas of my life within the last year that God has me so constrained and it's glorious. Stop the, stop the psychotherapy interpretation of that as like repressive. That, that's such a false way of understanding the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anyone who knows it understands the beauty and the safety and the warmth of, of, of loving constraint. And there are places in my life that I'm living so constrained by God's lessons that there's, I'm leaning into some things way quicker than I would have ever in the past because of the posture I believe of this series in my own life. This is discipleship. To choose the narrow gate, the hard way that leads to life, this is the culture of God's kingdom. And I wanna encourage you to embrace the constraints of Christ's way. Every disciple must commit everything to follow Christ. Two ways, now two trees. Two trees is a bit of a transition. It almost feels like, like kinda like two messages, so, so just stick with me. The, Two trees is to evaluate what you hear taught about God. That's the message of the second part. Evaluate what you hear taught about God. Just look in the passage. Jesus transitions from this narrow gate, and then out of that, he's like, hey, because of that, the narrow gate and the wide gate, you need to be acutely sensitive to what you are hearing 
He says, beware of false prophets. You've got to learn here. What Jesus is saying is you've got to discern what you're hearing taught about God. A prophet is simply someone who stands up and speaks for God or on behalf of God, whether it's hopefully in our context, we believe it should be from God's word. But anyone who's speaking on God in any way should be listened to and discerned carefully. Because he's saying here in this passage that there's going to be people who are going to infiltrate into the community of believers and try to lead you away from Christ. By proclaiming something that's false, uh, so we've got to rightly discern what God is saying here. It, it should alarm us that also that the false teachers, they don't, they don't stand up in front of everybody and they're like, just want you to know I'm a false teacher. That's not the way it goes, right? The passage says that it actually they look like sheep, which means they come looking like unassuming, not dangerous, like sheep. And, and, but yet, that's just outward clothing, and what's within is a ravenous wolf trying to lead you away from Christ. And so we need discernment. His illustration is clear, would have been clear to the listener of this, at this time. Um, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? They would have known that it was really easy to confuse the small black berries on thorn bushes for grapes from far away. And also what the flowers that would have grown on thistles um, could have easily been confused as, oh, maybe there's some figs growing on that. Nope, just a thistle. And uh, so he, the, the message here is don't be deceived. As, as Jesus extends the illustration, he extends it to trees in an orchard. He says simply just judge the health of the tree by its fruit. If it's not, if it's not producing good fruit, you don't want to keep the tree in the orchard because it's, it's using nutrients, it's taking up space. And so he does what, an, what, what a, a person managing an orchard would do. If the tree is diseased, it's not, it's not producing fruit, you need to cut it down and throw it in the fire so that you can make room for healthy trees that produce healthy fruit. Don't be deceived. Evaluate. Have discernment. He notes here that you can't see their heart. Remember, it's sheep clothing, but ravenous wolves. And so, but you can recognize their fruits. So what are the fruits referring to here? I believe in studying this that you could balance two things that would be the fruits that you would see from a false prophet. Two different things. First, their teaching is a fruit. You can evaluate the words that are communicated. You can also evaluate their life. So we've got to evaluate the words spoken and the life lived. Okay, so, so how do we process this passage, which had a specific context, made complex by the fact that now, at that time, beware, beware of false prophets would have been people that they would have actually seen. There, there wasn't social media, there wasn't, there wasn't massive books being produced, and all sorts of access to so many messages in our world. Anybody tired of it? I'm a little, I'm a little tired of it. There's something just amazing about just a book in my hands. It feels so 1950s, um, given our world today. But, it's, but think about it. Like, our context is totally different. So, so how do I bring this to, to apply to our lives today? So I processed through that from this passage, and I also took into account the many other passages in the New Testament that talk about false teachers and so I, the question, I was like, how can I provide helpful direction here? It was, it was a little difficult. And so I, I came up with three words that I believe capture the heart of what I see 
in the Gospels, in Jesus communicating here and in other places, three words to help us. These words are persistent, patient, and principled. Persistent, patient, and principled. I wish I could say I see this a lot in the church in response to false teaching. I oftentimes see either um, no persistence, just a laziness, like whatever I hear is great. If the person says they love Jesus and if they're wearing a cross necklace, you're like, okay, maybe we need a bit more discernment than that. I also see a tremendous amount of impatience. Just people rushing and taking shots at people for things that I, I think fall well short of being called a false teacher, false prophet. And then no principle. There seems to be no starting point for basing my view on. And so I just want to serve us this morning. Uh, let these three words guide the evaluation of what you hear taught about God. First, persistent. Uh, Jesus was not joking here. He said, beware. Beware. Watch out for. And not just then, but now. False teaching still exists, so persist in evaluating. I- I'm not going to talk a lot about what to do with, with outside sources because there's just so many but I want to talk about what you should do here and, and use that as an illustration for what I think you should try to do in other contexts. At Christ Church, we have a commitment that we want to preach from the Word of God. But you still should be like the Bereans in Acts who examined the Scriptures daily for yourself to see if these things were so. And I can't, I can't read this about Jesus to be like, yeah, you should just believe everything you hear from this pulpit. You should discern that. You should persist in careful evaluation when anyone speaks for for God. Whether it's sermons or books or YouTube videos, websites, counselors, parents, friends, the list could go on. Examine every statement of truth. Bring it up against and test it against the scriptures. In addition, persist in evaluating the life of the person teaching. Now, I understand this. Um, But there is a reality that you should watch their life. Does it reflect what they are teaching? Do you see them applying the truth to their life? James 3.1 says, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We have established here at our church a six-month rhythm because of our uh, belief in this that, that there are character qualifications to standing up and representing God rather informally in different ways around our church. But our church staff, we have a six-month rhythm right now that we've gotten into um, within this last year where we're talking to each staff person really purposely about their character and their spiritual life. No, no, not for sort of like, what's going on? But sort of like, we love you. And we know that we want you to minister out of a healthy place. In addition, the elders are working towards the same rhythm with me. But still, anyone can come to our elders with any concerns on this at any time. Jesus told us to beware, so persist in evaluating teaching and life. Persist in it. But make sure you add the second one in, which is patient. Do not fail to persist in evaluation, but don't move to paranoia. Okay, that's not healthy, not for you or for me to move to paranoia. 
Don't rush to, to tear down any tree that, that shows the first sign of being diseased and quickly just throw it into the fire. Don't rush to judgment or respond with irrational fear. If someone misquotes a verse, it might be an innocent mistake. It's probably not your best move to assume that now they are a ravenous wolf. Okay? Get the picture I'm painting? Like, the second you see a small bit of disease on the tree or one bad piece of fruit that doesn't seem fully formed, we don't rush to tear down the tree and throw it in the fire. There's patience here. There's patience and love. That's not kingdom culture. To rush, that's called cancel culture. It's an alarming response with no patience, no regard for graciousness or love. And so let me just say this completely and totally, honestly and authentically. Every one of my sermons is somewhat incomplete. I feel the tension of it. I feel it every week. Trusting God's grace and the Spirit of God to cover the gap between uh, the, the, the perfect sermon, sometimes that I see and, and edit and work on throughout the week to, to try to communicate all the pieces and the nuances of what I feel like needs to be done, but knowing the limits of I cannot preach, no one can preach the full counsel of God in every message. And, and I know that, that I've got I've to settle and be okay, and by God's grace I have been very consistently um, knowing that my best effort has, is, is going to need and require the graciousness of God and the work of the Spirit to serve you well. Some messages I preach in the first years of our church, I would not preach the same way. Th- there was fruit produced from it, I know that. Because I know God's promises on some of that, that your labor is not in vain, but it was underdeveloped. It was underdeveloped. It wasn't bad for you, it was just underdeveloped. And so my responsibility and any person's responsibility who communicates for God, I believe this should be parents, I believe this should be uh, leaders in ministries throughout that are in, on the front lines of discipleship with students and with adults. Any person who teaches or speaks for God brings God's word to bear on people's lives. The responsibility, and I feel this and I walk in this, is to stay open to evaluation and remain teachable open to correction anywhere in our doctrine, in our theology, and our teaching. And I want, I encourage you to bring any question to me or to our elders anytime. I'm submitted to them, but more importantly than that, I am submitted to God. And I live weekly under the reality that God will judge me for my teaching rightly, perfectly, lovingly, and graciously. And there's joy there and there's life there. In the same way, patience in evaluating a person's life. Any teacher of God's word at any level in our church or any church has fallen. We have weaknesses and struggles just like anyone else. Be careful the pedestal you put us on. Because listen, listen, listen. Sometimes the reality of someone's uh, life does not, when revealed, sometimes in even really difficult, heavy, disqualifying ways, does not disqualify the message. But when it does, it means that we've put the message on, we put the person on a pedestal higher than the message. And that's a tremendous place of instability. 
However, just like you should be patient in that, there, there, there is a reality of being held to a higher standard. If there is any ongoing unrepentant sin in my life that I hide or I refuse counsel on once revealed, it is a problem that could and rightly should lead to me being disqualified from ministry for a short, medium, longer, or permanent period. That's a reality of what a teacher is called to in the kingdom of God. Those are the qualifications that you see in First and Second Timothy and Titus of an elder who would speak for God. All of this requires patience. Patience in our evaluation of it, but still persistence. Persistence and patience, then this last one. Finally, let your evaluation be principled. This week when I was working on this, I found such a helpful guide that um, Albert Moeller from Southern Seminary um, put together a number of years ago, and it's a model that honestly is very similar to what our church leadership uses um, in, in, in many discussions that we have about doctrines or convictions. And so I want to share it with you so that you understand both where our church stands on some of this and what I believe is the most uh, consistent, principled way to evaluate teaching. Because I want to serve you as you listen to all of the things from all of the sources. He orders doctrines into three, uh, what he calls sort of first order, second order, and third order. So I want you to see this up on the screen. First, first order doctrines are core claims of Christianity that define true faith from counterfeit faith. So if you were to think about this, it would be things like the Trinity, incarnation of Jesus, that he was actually born, substitutionary atonement, that he died on the cross in your place for your sins to pay the penalty, the inerrancy of scripture, the bodily resurrection of Christ, creation, and Christ's return. First order doctrines. Now, second order doctrines, these are things that, that lead to different denominational um, moves and even different nuances that you might see in what we would call our brothers and sisters in Christ, but, but just in different practices that are, that are core to that church or that, and we've got some of these. But some of the different ones are things like baptism or church government or an emphasis on charismatic gifts or worship preferences or even some level of gender roles in the context of the church. Second order doctrines. There's great tolerance here. It might be like, well, that's kind of different than what I believe, but like, we love Jesus and we share the same gospel commitments. Then there's third order doctrines. These are theological opinions that honest Christians can disagree about and yet still be a part of the same church or group of churches. One of the very specific ones that I could give you on this is, um, is the specific um, end times view. Man, some people have every single minute mapped out of that end times. And I gotta be honest, you can look on our statement, our official statement is we believe in the glorious appearing of Christ, first order doctrine. The specifics, third order. There's, there's differences on our staff. There's differences on our elder team. Not threatened by that, not in any way. Because we believe there's charity in this. And, and so, um, listen, third order is, is specific timing of events around his return, and there's a hundreds of other minor issues or preferences around the church that fit in this category. And if you're around the church long enough, you're like, man, some people have some really crazy things that the way they talk about it is like it's a first order doctrine. 
They're like, you have to have this to be a church. I don't actually think that's in the Bible. Please share. Um, 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 yeah, pretty positive it's not. And so this is even in light of what I talked about over the past two weeks with the vision frame. You see this. So here, watch this, watch this, watch this. When someone takes first order doctrines and they, move, they either eliminate them or they move them down to third order doctrines, that's theological liberalism. That's a liberal move that basically is cutting at the very legs of everything about the gospel. At that point, I would say if they're teaching that and they're doing that, I'd be like, that's a false teaching. Because at that point, you're, you're eliminating everything about the reality of the faith. I mean, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's like, if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you are to be pitied more than any men for believing and following something that doesn't have any substance. You see? You can't collapse it down. But also what Jesus warns against is taking everything and making it a first order doctrine. You see this in fundamentalist churches. You see this in places where um, uh, even the idea of sort of Pharisaism is this idea that we're just going to add more until this is so narrow that even the people that are teaching that can't fit through. Like nobody's skinny enough to get through that narrow gate because they're just like, man, you, it is impossible what, what you're communicating. And it's more than what Jesus even asks. It's too narrow or it's too wide. Focus on the first things. Focus on the first things. Everything about our desire and plan moving forward in teaching our church is to focus on the first things. To have a church that's able to establish convictions on main primary doctrinal issues, and yes, still be able to talk about and even enjoy different perspectives on second order or third order but what I want you to hear from this most importantly as I start to conclude is that in two trees, the illustration that Jesus is giving here is that a person who's wanting to give everything to follow Jesus is not just going to embrace the constraints of Christ's way, but they're also going to evaluate what they hear about God. And I believe that this is a place for some of us to be stretched some of us have come from backgrounds that you're just like, man, it was so tight that like you couldn't move without getting your hand slapped. And some of you have lived in places where it was so loose that there was no constraints. And so understanding to live in those constraints feels hard and it should. But don't lead people wrongly into the open end. And don't make the narrow gate unnecessarily narrow. Gospel truth is already necessarily exclusive. So let's, let's learn to walk in this rightly, to consider the gospel in the way that Jesus communicated it. Every disciple must commit everything to follow Christ. Embrace the constraints of Christ's way. Evaluate what you hear taught about God. Both are necessary for the disciple who follows Christ. Let's pray together. God, I... Um, I, I feel the reality of how countercultural this message is. Father, there's a um, there's a conviction that I want you to bear into our hearts that also has with it a gentleness 
and the patience that is marked by the fruit of gospel love. I also pray, God, that you would give us discernment. I, I, I know, God, from conversations I've had and moments of counsel that I've given that there are uh, so many messages that people can easily rush to and find hundreds of thousands of messages of sermons of things that are being taught about God and God honestly it's a bit intimidating and I, I'm asking that you would give us discernment I'm, I'm asking that even in the constraints of Christ's way that we would get our hearts and our minds focused on the beauty of those first order doctrines that I believe God that in some ways that I believe you want us primarily to run in those in our faith in our study of God's word in our encouragement of one another in the way we build up one another in the way that we pass the faith on to the next generation and all of those things God would we be clear about the the cost and the narrowness of your way but at the same time God would we give people a compelling sense of the life that that leads to I pray we'd be a people who count the cost I I, I, I pray that that would be seen from our lives and from the ways that we communicate the gospel. I'm asking for balance, not perfection, God. Please give us grace to walk in it, to be joyful in it, to share the gospel clearly to people. And I pray this morning, God, for some who may have been um, entered in through the wide gate, a message that seems to be free without cost and maybe some are feeling that cost right now I pray God that they would accept you fully for who you are both Lord and Savior and King and that our knees would bow and that in the hardness of letting go of some things you would lead us to life so God I ask that you would bore this into our culture so that it might reflect your kingdom it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.